service, everything we do here at Providence in our worship services is to revolve around the Word of God because we believe this is God's truth to us. It is God being a friend to us and communicating to us his intentions and his will. And and Daniel referred to the fact that we read the word, we hear the word, we pray the word, and we sing the word. And I hope that you're taking opportunity before your K group to, to take the worship guide, look at the lyrics of the hymns that we're singing, so that you can see how we're even singing the truths of God based on what the sermon text is. And so maybe even this coming week at your K group, when you get together in small groups, You might even sing one of these hymns. Uh, That should be a joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your sweet Holy Spirit who communicates and imparts to us, Lord, this precious word. We thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us hanging, that you save us just to await our destiny, but that, Lord, you are preparing us already for good works, Lord, so that we might magnify you, that we might demonstrate our affections towards you. And Lord, we thank you that you give us the divine privilege of being able to share the gospel. Lord, we pray especially for our dear sister who will be leaving for Turkestan next week. We pray, Lord, that you would go before her and prepare the way there for her. But Lord, we also pray that you would motivate us just as you've motivated her to go and speak your truth there, that we would go across the street and speak it to our neighbor. So Lord, work in us today that we might see the power of what Christ has done and it would fill our hearts with joy and that we would want to tell others. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, because of the events that we're about to see in these upcoming chapters, this is a good spot to do a quick review of what's transpired in Abraham's life so far. Now, we should remember that this man was living in Ur of the Chaldees with his family when Yahweh called him to go to a land that he would show him. And if Abraham obeyed, God would bless him and make a blessing of him for all the nations of the world. Well, it took a while, but eventually Abraham obeyed and settled in the land of Canaan with his nephew Lot. And since that initial calling, the Lord had been demonstrating his faithfulness to Abraham. It would appear sometime at the situations that that Abraham and Lot had gotten themselves into were due to their own foolishness. And yet God rescues Abraham's wife Sarah from Pharaoh's harem in Egypt. When Lot chooses to settle near Sodom, God ensures Abraham's victory over Ketelamar and rescues his nephew from captivity. The Lord formalizes his covenant with Abraham in chapter 15, promising him descendants as numerous as the stars. And immediately after that, Abraham and Sarah make vast assumptions about this promise and take matters into their own hands by having Sarah's servant Hagar become a surrogate for their child. Hagar produces a son named Ishmael, and this creates strife within the family. God steps in once again in chapter 17 and reveals that the promised child, who will produce God's chosen nation that will bless the world, will come from Sarah's womb. And as an indicator that Abraham believes in this promise of Yahweh, he will circumcise all the males within his household. God has proven himself to Abraham over and over again. 
And as such, Abraham's faith in God has grown. Now, in the next scene, in chapters 18 and 19, we're about to see a remarkable encounter here between God and Abraham's family. Now, I've been fond of reminding you throughout our study in Genesis that the primary character in this book is Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. The focus on different people, such as Adam, Noah, and Abraham, changes over time, but God is always the chief actor. But in the next two chapters, we do need to focus on Abraham as he is about to assume a role as an intercessor for the people of Sodom. God will appear before Abraham in the likeness of an angel. And the interaction between Abraham and chapter 18 compared to the interaction with Lot in chapter 19 will be markedly different. It will reveal just how different Abraham has become under the Lord's guidance compared to his nephew from the same bloodline. Now, while we're only going to be able to cover chapter 18 this morning, in fact, turn with me there if you don't mind, to Genesis 18. While we're only going to be able to cover this particular chapter, I'm going to ask that you hold on to this information and you keep it in mind when we later cover chapter 19. In some ways, I'm going to be leaving you on a cliffhanger at the end of the sermon, all right? So this chapter is divided neatly into four sections. You have a divine visitation, a divine annunciation, a divine reflection, and Abraham's intercession. Now we'll walk through each one of these, and of course, we'll save a little time for comments at the end. So in the first eight verses, Abraham receives three visitors at his home in Hebron which is where the Oaks of Mamre were and where he's been living since chapter 13, verse 18. And one of these characters is referred to as the Lord, all capital letters, meaning this is Yahweh making an appearance before Abraham. It was not clear in chapter 17 when the Lord appeared to Abraham, if that was in a vision or not, but this time God and two of his angels show up in what appears to Abraham as flesh and blood. Now I'm often asked, If this is Jesus, the eternal son, making an appearance before his incarnation upon the earth through Mary? And my answer is, I don't know. Now, I know that the triune God operates outside of space and time as we know it. So while I think it's likely, I can't say for certain. All I can do is just go by what the text tells me, that Yahweh appears before Abraham in a manner that he perceives that they can eat a meal in bodily form. Now, we'll have to save a sermon on angelology and spiritual beings for a later date, okay? But what is important for us to note is that these three visitors appear at the most inconvenient time of the day, the heat of the day, late afternoon. And look at the hospitality Abraham demonstrates to them. He assumes a lesser role. He runs to greet them. He bows down himself before them. He respectfully addresses one of them as Lord, lowercase letters this time, even though throughout the rest of the conversation, Abraham seems to know who he's talking to. And then after offering his invitation, Abraham prepares food. Now, this isn't just any meal. This is the equivalent of a Near Eastern banquet. He orders Sarah to use seven quarts of flour and make bread. This is more bread than they could possibly eat. 
He prepares the fatted calf, and he presents them with milk and curds as well. Note in verse 8 here that Abraham stands while the visitors sit and eat. He had assumed the role of a servant, ready to serve at a moment's notice if needed. Abraham's hospitality is off the charts here. And then the dialogue begins. Now, Sarah is not present. That was unusual, as normally the family would at least be sitting at the side as the guest ate. And these visitors know, their, know her name even though they have not yet been introduced to her. They ask where she is. She's in the tent next to him. This is when God specifically speaks and makes an annunciation, a grand announcement. God himself will return at this same time, a precise time, next year, and Sarah will have a son. This is the first time that Sarah discovers this news, even though Abraham previously heard it back in chapter 17, verse 19. And she has the same reaction as Abraham did. She laughs. Verse 11 uses a euphemism here, the way of women, which means she's no longer experienced her menstrual cycle. That coupled with Abraham's advanced age should mean this would be impossible. But we serve a God of the impossible. With him, all things are possible. Our God breathes life into clay and it becomes man. He can revive hearts of stone, revive marriages, raise the dead. He can cause a virgin to conceive and give birth to the Savior of the world. And he can conquer sin and death. He always keeps his word, and with the Lord, there is always hope. Our God can do anything. Now, we can see why Sarah would have a chuckle at this. But Yahweh declares it to be so. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this same time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now you have this awkward interchange here. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Now don't lose sight of this. Sarah just lied before God. She said she didn't laugh, but she did. And Yahweh revealed his divine insight that he knew that she had. This would have been like one of those awkward moments that can happen when you're having a conversation with someone and you make a little offhanded remark, and then there's that awkward moment when you realize they're being serious right now. They really mean this. And God, knowing for sure that Sarah laughed, would have confirmed even more the truth that she would conceive. He knows everything. And it's at this moment that the visitors depart. In verse 16, Abraham, like a good host, accompanies them. And they arrive at a vista overseeing the city of Sodom. And the narrator reveals an inner conversation that Yahweh is having. Now, we should recognize that this is for our benefit. Only a Holy Spirit-inspired author would know the thoughts of God. And what we are about to see is that God considers Abraham his friend. We learn how special this is from other texts like Amos chapter 3, verse 7, "...for the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants the prophets." 
And Jesus, as he said to his disciples in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. God is going to reveal his intentions to Abraham because he considers him to be a friend. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him and he may, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So Yahweh reveals what he's going to do to his friend Abraham. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now God is omniscient. He already knows how bad Sodom and Gomorrah has become. He knew just how wicked humans had become with the first sin in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Also in the line of Cain in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And certainly before the flood in chapter 6. And a holy God must punish sin. And Sodom and Gomorrah are both ripe for judgment. But he is stating that he is going to investigate the matter for Abraham's sake. He is doing this for the sole purpose of what Abraham is about to do in these remaining verses of the chapter. Now, the two angels accompanying God leave to go to investigate the matter. And in response to this news, Abraham, who is a man of sensitivity, seeks to intercede on behalf of the city, the place where his nephew resides. Now, notice as Abraham speaks throughout this, how he tries to place himself in a lowly position because he is scared of what he is asking for here. Verse 23, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now, Abraham knows the character of God. To to punish the righteous would be contrary to what he knows about his God. Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham knows that God is surely a righteous judge. All that he does is perfection. Surely he would not destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. Therefore, for the sake of the possible righteous ones, Abraham seeks to intercede, and he pleads for the homes and the livelihoods of the righteous. And amazingly, God concedes. Verse 26, and the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Note the word whole. So Abraham negotiates even more. He humbly negotiates for 45, then 40 to 30, then 20, then 10. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. 
will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Each time God assures Abraham that he would spare the entire city if the righteous dwelt among them. I personally think Abraham could have negotiated down to one and the Lord would have spared it. Verse 33, and the Lord went his way and when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Now looking ahead, the following morning, Abraham will return to this same spot. We'll read about that in chapter 19, verses 27 and 28. He will see that the entire valley will be consumed by fire. The whole area was consumed by the wrath of God. A warning to us, even in this day. And because Abraham is becoming a faithful man, he will know that God kept his word. He knew what kind of city Sodom was. Abraham had known that all the way since chapter 13, verse 13. He would have been certain that if the Lord had found the righteous among them, he would have spared the place. But that was the problem. There was no righteous person among them. Not even Abraham's nephew, Lot. The next time we return to this book, we will examine Lot's behavior compared to Abraham. Now, to be certain, Abraham was no ideal, perfect man. But in comparison to Lot, there will be marked differences. Abraham separated himself from the pagans. Lot lived and made his home among them. He, will, uh, he doesn't offer hospitality to the visiting angels when they arrive, but instead he has to offer protection. He will even sacrifice his own daughters for their safety. And later he's going to have an incestuous relationship with his own children. Not even Lot and his family are righteous. Now we'll save for the next sermon why the Lord spares them. So with no one innocent... The Lord is obligated in holiness to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In later scriptures, these two cities will stand as paragons of evilness. Whenever someone wants to describe just how wicked a people have become, they will evoke the names of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were thoroughly wicked and deserved punishment. So what does all this mean? Besides more confirmation that God will bring a son through Sarah, why is this scene so important to be included in the Abrahamic narrative? Well, let me give you four reasons. I believe this scene is important for four reasons here. Number one, it reveals God's friendship to Abraham. This is the nature of the Lord. 
He doesn't make Abraham his servant, though he is, but God considers him a friend, revealing his inmost thoughts. And because of what Jesus has done and our union with Christ, we too become God's friends. When you read the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind through it, you are hearing and reading the inmost thoughts of God. He is sharing with you all of His plans, even what He's going to do in the future. This is what it is like to be friends with the God of the universe. Number two, it reveals God's justice. Justice characterizes God. Every action and decree he makes is perfection. Psalm 9 tells us he has established his throne for justice. He practices and delights in justice and righteousness according to Jeremiah 9.24. Every morning he shows forth his justice, Zephaniah 3.5. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's thrones, Psalm 89. And Isaiah 5.16 tells us he is exalted in justice. And the just God has justified Christians through the precious blood of his son Jesus. The Father dispensed absolute justice on the Son for our behalf. And if you are justified before God, then your life will reveal it. Justification is to justice what faith is to good works. Genuine faith results in good deeds, and doing good deeds gives evidence of genuine faith. Similarly, being justified results in a desire to do justice. And doing justice gives evidence inside of us of being justified. You can't help but feel for the oppressed, those who are the victims of injustice. You must care, and you must seek to rectify it because justice characterizes God. Those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies, conforming them into the image of his Son. Number three, it reveals Abraham's growing character. It's demonstrated in Abraham's hospitality as he puts others ahead of himself. And it's demonstrated as he just dared to risk his standing before God in order to protect his fellow humans. In the previous chapters, he risked his wife. He risked the servant woman, Hagar. But here we see the process of sanctification beginning to work. Abraham cares about anyone who is possibly righteous in Sodom. There will not be anyone righteous, but he still cares. Abraham is not just some pawn in God's grand scheme. He is God's friend. And as such, God is conforming him to his image. He is a God of justice, and at the same time, he is also a God of mercy. And Abraham's character begins to grow and reflect that of God's. And number four, it shows us that despite Abraham's righteousness by faith, He is still an inadequate intercessor. He is an adequate intercessor. Abraham could ask God to be just, but he could not absorb God's wrath and justice on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, or even for his nephew Lot. That is why each and every one of us needs a special intercessor. 
In fact, if you will, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is found on page 991 of your pew Bible. When Paul teaches about intercessory prayer to his protege Timothy, he tells him to pray for political leaders so that peace might endure in order for the gospel to spread. And as an example, he points to Christ here. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, just so we're clear, in context, Paul is referring to the Gentiles when he says all in verse 4. His point is that the gospel is available to all people groups, all ethnicities outside the Jews as well, only because of Jesus's mediation. He is the only one that can save any person. John's going to say a very similar thing in 1 John 2. He wants his readers to know that if any of us does sin, no matter what the sin, we have an advocate before the Father. Jesus, the righteous one. No, Abraham, as much as he's grown in his sanctification, could never be an adequate intercessor. Our sin is just too great an obstacle for any human. We need a Savior who is both divine and human, and that is what we have in Jesus. And Jesus' intercession at the cross is complete. It is finished. Nothing more could be needed than the precious sacrifice of the Son of God. Now, if you will, please turn with me to Romans 8, to that grand passage that we read earlier in this service. This is found on page 944 of your pew Bible. I want you to lay eyes on this passage as you see why we must place our faith in Christ's finished work alone and in nothing else. There is no other mediator between God and man other than Christ, or God and woman other than Christ. Now, we need to start at verse 29 to see whom we are talking about. The he here in this passage is God the Father. And what did he do? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, to prove that justification is perfect, not lacking in anything, Paul asks these next set of questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who, folks? No one. 
Because it is God himself who justifies. Who is to condemn, folks? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? And what is Jesus doing there? Who indeed is intercedeing for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. I could not have said it any better. Why? Because of what Jesus did on our behalf. He is able to intercede where Abraham could not. He is able to pay for the sins that Abraham could not pay for. He is our mediator, our only hope. And it is sufficient. It is sufficient. Let's pray. Lord, when we get ready to have Brian come up here to celebrate the supper with us. We pray that as we hold these elements in our hands, Lord, that we would recognize that they represent something tangible, something that happened in space-time history, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom all of us would say we are the worst. But Lord, we know that we can be saved through Jesus Christ because he is the one mediator between God and men and women. That when we place our faith in him and what he did, particularly as we nourish ourselves spiritually through this supper, that, Lord, we would recognize our faith is in him alone. We cannot save ourselves. No one can save us but Jesus But what a grand and glorious salvation that it is. That we're not only just saved to escape hell, but we are also called your friend. We are also conformed to be in the image of your son. You are sanctifying us. You are making us more complete as we become more and more like you. Oh Lord, may we rejoice this morning in what Christ has done for us. May we celebrate it over and over again. And Lord, for my brother, my sister, Lord, who is dealing right now with a personal struggle, with a personal sin, with something that just feels so overwhelming, and they wonder, is it enough? Confirm in them this morning, affirm this truth that Christ Jesus is the one who justifies, not them, that he is sufficient and that nothing can separate them from your love because of what Jesus has done. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Brother Brian.